I know this, what I'm about to say may be quite obvious to all of you, but somehow in the last few years it's become, I don't know, somehow crystal clear to me and really like, oh, it just kind of gave me a whole picture of the path in a different way, which is what we've been cultivating here, really uh, bringing awareness to the habits of our mind and really purifying and transforming the habits of our mind. And it's really become clear to me that all, all the different practices, all the different parts of the path that the Buddha taught and talked about, all of them are coming from different angles of purifying, transforming the habits of our mind. It's like somehow that just makes it uh, accessible, simple, not easy, but simple, straightforward, and a kind of a, the thread that unites in my mind, that's how it works in my mind, <clears throat> all of the different forms of practice. Um, instead of having to set up one against the other, or this is like the inferior and you get to the superior, they're all coming from different angles of purifying these habits of our mind. And I want to just <clears throat> talk in a broad way uh, about that tonight. Um, the definition the Buddha gives uh, of the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, is this, the cessation of dukkha is the remainderless cessation and relinquishment of craving. Craving being the cause of suffering of dukkha in the second noble truth. And for craving, you can read the three kalesha, greed, hatred, delusion, the remainderless fading away. So in that way, freedom from suffering is defined in this way as the purified heart-mind, or as is often spoken of, the supreme state of sublime peace discovered by the Tathagata, mainly liberation of mind through non-clinging. So this is really what we can explore the whole way along in our practice. It's something that's uh, like really tangible, workable, discoverable on a moment-to-moment basis. That's what's so far out about the way things work. I think I mentioned sometime um, that I really find it quite helpful and energizing in practice when I recognize the fact that everything's... uh, changing on a moment-to-moment basis, especially in terms of looking at our mind, our heart. Um, As Andy Olensky describes it, the Pali scholar and friend, says, in Buddhism, the mind is not a subject that has objects as content, it's not a thing, but it is rather the activity or process of cognizing a flow of events. So when we talk about mind, the mind, we think of this something there with things happening in it. But it's really just this process of cognition. Sano Tejaniya says the way you recognize the mind is simply by the activity, not by turning around and seeing something. So it's changing every moment. We've recognized this some, right? This is the only thing that makes cultivation, transforming the habits possible. But it's also what makes it, we can be so lost in a moment and really quite awake in another moment. It's not that we have to wait until we get to the total 
ultimate, complete, remainderless, never again going to arise moment of ever greed, delusion, or aversion in the mind. You don't have to wait for that. That's good news for you. (laughs) And to me, that's what makes practice not overwhelmingly discouraging. Really. (laughs) I'm serious. Because, you know, if we think in terms of we've got to uproot all the kalatia, every time they come, we've got to get out that shovel and dig them up. And until, until they're all gone, we're just going to be, you know, mucking around in this hopeless mess. You see how many kalatias come up in a day in your mind, right? Right? You're not alone. None of us are alone. If we're thinking they've all got to go, and we're waiting for that, it's a little demoralizing. It's a little... <laughs> but if we can really get a sense of seeing how all the different aspects of the path which comprise our whole life, that our whole life becomes, if that's our motivation, if that's our aspiration, all aspects of our life become part of the path of purifying, transforming these habits of mind. So, and as we've seen here, we can't control this, but the arising of greed, hatred, and delusion, the arising of wisdom, the arising of wholesome states, it's out of our control, but it's not random, right? See, we've talked about that a lot. The classic line from the Buddha, what the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the natural inclination of the mind, the habit, right? So we come in, what do we naturally think and ponder upon? You've seen (laughs) all too clearly what the habits are. But all the time that we put in in this retreat and for almost everybody here in, in other retreats and in your life, all the moments that the mind is inclining to awareness, to non-greed, to non-ill will, to compassion, to interest, to samadhi, all those times are also feeding into the habits of what the mind naturally inclines towards. This is the only thing that makes it workable. So you remember when Steve read the sutta, the, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. And this, this purity, this radiance is simply obscured by the visiting torments, the visiting kalatia. And partly they're obscured because we get so fascinated by either getting sucked into the kalatia or fighting against them or in the reaction and onto the object that we forget to even notice the radiance. Sometimes it would be quite noticeable if we would remember. Same as our awareness, you know. We don't even remember it's there, and when we do, it's just there. It's so normal. So in a way, you could say the habits, the unwholesome habits are learned. Desmond Tutu, you know, uh, from South Africa, the Archbishop who's so uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, winner, who's uh, one of the main architects of the whole peace and reconciliation process there. I heard him, just a brief snippet of him on the radio. He was in Boston meeting with a a bunch of of students. It sounded like they were... uh, uh, late adolescents, like maybe, you know, 18, 19-year-old young, young men and women from very um, p- 
poor, difficult section of town. And um, he, he was saying to them, we learn to hate. It's not our natural state. We learn to hate. And one of the students said to him, but how can we? We live in the middle of a culture of violence. You know, how can we possibly learn how to love? And he just, he could hear him on the radio, couldn't see him, but he could hear him. He just turned to that young man and said, you, you can make a difference. It starts with you and you and you and you. One person can make a difference. And just know it's not like that hate isn't our natural state and it's not the only response and we don't have to just give in to that for ourselves. I found that really inspiring from him. So... There's a place in the sutta where the Buddha is just talking about cultivating skillful, wholesome habits, abandoning unskillful, unwholesome habits. And he says, if it were not possible, I would not tell you to do so. But because it is possible, I say, abandon the unskillful, cultivate the skillful. He said, if abandoning the unskillful led to your further suffering and unhappiness, I wouldn't tell you to do so. But it doesn't. It leads to, let's see if I have the right words. I shouldn't put words in the Buddha's mouth. Although English, I mean, he wasn't speaking English, was he? Okay, I don't have it. (laughs) You get the drift. (laughs) He said, if cultivating the wholesome led to greater suffering to unhappiness, I wouldn't tell you to do so, but it doesn't. It leads to freedom from suffering and happiness and ease. Therefore, because it is possible, I tell you to do so. So I really take that in, you know? Really take it in. If it were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do so. But it takes, I feel certainly in my limited experience and everything I've seen, it takes As you see how hard just on a nine-day retreat where we've cleared the decks and that's all we're doing here, how hard it is even to be aware, never mind not getting all caught up in the unwholesome. And also maybe you've noticed how how often we don't recognize the wholesome. You know, we kind of get so focused on getting rid of the unwholesome, which of course isn't what awareness is doing, right? We all know awareness is not getting rid of the unwholesome. It's simply being present with things as they are and allowing the clear seeing. And what's so cool, and we said this before, is the wisdom that comes from the steady awareness that's just simply from recognizing accurately, that's all. The wisdom that arises when we recognize accurately in a moment the unwholesome's abandoned because it doesn't make any sense. But it takes a continual, I think, renewing for each of us in our own way of our own internal commitment, our own internal aspiration to do so. You know, I'm, I'm sure you know how easy it is, even on retreat, but when we, when we leave retreat, and this isn't, that's why we love this style of practice, it's not just about retreat, but there's so many more things to go and do and see, so many, okay, yeah, like, like someone was saying, how, how hard is it to be aware? Not very. How often do we think, okay, I'll be aware later? right now, what, as if you can't be aware whatever you're doing, you know, <laughs> you know, I'll be aware later. It's so easy. There's another place 
which I searched, I wrote it down years ago, and I could not find the reference, so don't ask me. I'm telling you right now. But where the Buddha said at one point, he said, the two things I never lost sight of for himself, talking about his own practice, was never to, not to be lax in my effort. In other words, not like just coast, which I find myself doing a lot until there's enough suffering that it kind of wakes me up again. Not to be lax in my effort, and never to be satisfied simply with wholesome states of mind, which I find really interesting. I think the way I read that is, you know, when it's completely wholesome states, when the glaciers are completely uprooted, right, that's okay, you can be satisfied then. But more along the way, when it's kind of, it's, it's sort of the same complacency, it's good enough, you know, it's a, the, the habits, they come and go, but we're not as bothered. They're not as strong. We really see a lot more wholesomeness, and this is true, you know? A lot more generosity, a lot less aversion, a lot less getting caught in stuff. We think, oh, that's pretty good, you know? And never to be satisfied until you really, really see our heart and minds are free. I mean, this is, to me, the the aspiration that keeps renewing itself in my heart and mind in different ways. And it's not a, not a, a, a negative judgment. It's like a, uh, an onward-leading aspiration. So just give an example. Um, different things bring it up in me from time, to, you know, from time to time over my life of practice. I'll go for a while and then something will kind of uh, inspire me. In, like, sort of like Steve said from his retreat, something really inspired him into another gear. So different times, different things. But a few years ago, <clears throat> this is the one that sticks with me in this context of really purifying the mind stream, the heart stream. Not, not that long ago, a few years ago, uh, when I was in Munich for a while, I went to visit Dachau. It's made, been made into a museum, you know, where the concentration camp was. And then all the years I've spent it, time in Germany, I just somehow never got around to doing that. And um, that was the effect it had on me very well set out as a museum with uh, lots of placards and photos different of all the different aspects and all the different kind of people that were involved and all the different strands, you know. And so coming through it and seeing the site, you know, and it was so big. And then my friends, when I went back to see my friends in Munich, they said, oh, but that's one of the small ones. You know, I thought, my God, it's huge. So you get the sense of the, the vastness of this, you know, kind of like unimaginable horror in my mind. But then the placards are, you know, of all the different groups of people and types of people who were interned there, you know, Jews and Roma and gay people and Catholics and on and on and on and on, and photos of different people. But then some of the people who were guards, people who made the bread, people who brought in the supplies, you know, all the different people. And by the end of it, what hit me was, wow, you know, there's so many people involved. And this is just Dachau, and this is just World War II Germany. You know, pick your place in the world of all the horrors. And anyway, we'll finish this first. There's so many people involved. There's no way my mind could, like, make it separate and say, well, all of these people were some kind of inhuman monsters. It's just not possible. Mostly ordinary people, doctors or people who lived in the village and brought in the food or, 
you know, people who were interned in the camp and acted in all different kinds of ways, noble and base and normal, and there's just the whole range of humanity. You know, and I think of any other, many of the other memorials to unspeakable horrors, like I read that they just opened in the, in the, um, the UN Plaza. It was called a permanent memorial to honor the victims of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, it took so long to make that. So you go, I haven't been there, I just looked at it online. Again, how many people over hundreds of years involved? They can't all be some kind of inhuman monsters or Srebrenica or Rwanda or the killing fields in Cambodia, on and on and on. So I know this might sound, this actually really inspired me in my own practice because what, what I realized is we don't really know until we're in a really difficult situation how we're going to behave. We don't really know. And you see, we don't really know how our when we don't really know how our mind works, you know. So I thought, I've never been in a situation even close to what any of these people were in. And I could, couldn't just look and say, well, I know I would never do that. Do what? You don't know. You make a small decision. You don't know all the ramifications. You don't know what went into it. Maybe just someone comes and says, do this, or some harm might come to your children and you do it out of fear. And you know, how do I know what I would do? I mean, so, so looking in my own life, you know, when we say, okay, I'm going to make, make an aspiration. I'm going to sit every day. You really think you mean it, don't you? With your whole heart, you mean I'm going to sit every day. How long does that last? Some people do sit every day. I'm always really amazed, actually, when I meet those people um, in their daily life. <laughs> you know, or I'm not going to get angry at my mother anymore. All this stuff, and we mean it. But because we don't really know how our minds are working, we're not really present with awareness, then the habits surface when the conditions are present for them. Like some people saying in the, in the little talking exercise today, I thought it was really cool. Quite a few people said with the awareness in, in the talking, they noticed the habits, you know, personality habits or habits of how they tend to engage in conversation coming up. So the awareness really starts to see it. And some people acted on it, some didn't. That's not the thing. But the more we see it and see it coming up in particular situations, we're like, oh, this is a practice of awareness. So for me... That was, um, that was the most recent really re-inspiration to look at what that Buddha said, never be satisfied simply with wholesome states of mind. Because I was feeling, you know, I could easily, it's, it's not, God knows, it's not perfect, but it's good enough. Until somebody really bugs me, it's good enough, you know. <laughs> much more peaceful than ever used to be, much more at ease, it really, you know. But then I thought, no, it isn't good enough. It isn't good enough. And that's not a judgment. This really, this kind of aspiration to keep us on the momentum, as you've seen, the aspiration is an uplifting, wholesome quality. It brings energy, like when Steve talked about sada, faith, it brings the energy to do. That kind of aspiration. Yes, if it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do so. And not being satisfied with good enough, in my language. So that just means you know, ramping up all the different aspects of practice to see when greed, 
when aversion, with self, when self-centered delusion is up and driving the bus, even in little stuff. And that doesn't mean you don't do it. It doesn't mean you naturally stop and it doesn't mean you bring in more aversion to yourself because that's just aversion. But you say, I really want to see. Many people here have said, you know, in different times in the groups that they're starting to see, oh, you know, the big, the big uh, dramas that I'm, used to happen on retreat aren't happening so much, but I'm noticing how much, much more subtle craving is showing up or more subtle aversion is showing up. And I, I think that's great, you know, because it's the subtle ones who think, no, nah, that oh, that's a little aversion, that doesn't really matter. And then the next thing you know, you're tapping out an email, you know, that spells with all this stuff. And, oh, I just thought it was funny, you know, and the person on the other end like, oh, God, you know. <laughs> so really turning around and watching what's going on in our mind. That's what we can do. We don't know what the effect is going to be of many of our choices and actions. We don't know the whole circumstance. The thing we, we, we can't always know, but the place that we can bring awareness is what's the quality in the mind that's motivating this speech, this action. And oh, a lot of times it's complex and a lot of times we can't tell, sure. But we keep on having the interest, the willingness to look. So it's better now, you know, when I get an email and I can feel something, oh no, that's just not right, let me tell them, you know. And I'm supposed to answer and give my opinion. I'm actually supposed to do that. And so I start to go, but now I can feel this kind of, uh, but I know I'm right, uh. And I'm, most of the time, I manage not write it tomorrow. Write it tomorrow. Because I can feel the aversion in my mind, even though it's masquerading as my appropriate informed opinion. And the next day, I may have the same appropriate informed opinion. Because let's face it, the aversion's there because you know you're right. So <laughs> you know, of course, the flip side of a, the aversive type is discriminating wisdom. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> but the next day, even when I have the same opinion, that aversive tinge is gone and it feels so completely different. You know, I can write it so completely differently. And it's the same with craving, you know. You write something because you really want this thing to happen. The next day, when it's not so much craving, you can see the whole picture. You can see the other person's point of view. You can write the email from a much more um, clear comprehension perspective, not just my perspective. And so it's in the little things like that that we bring this awareness of uh, our motivation of the habits of mind into our practice. So from that I want to um, switch to, not switch, but move into talking about a little bit about this third noble truth. Remembering, talking not the remainderless forever, but the moment-to-moment possibility of really recognizing a sense, the flavor of the heart-mind that's pure in that moment, that's free from clinging the quality of mind. It's not a distant state or a state at all. But it, you know, in a moment of the process of mind, heart, consciousness arising with awareness, the five faculties and no clinging, aversion or greed, that's a moment of purity. This is from 
Ajahn Buddhadasa. And I've talked about him before, the Thai forest monk who was uh, quite a scholar. And also for Thailand, for the Thai Theravada system, a little bit of a rebel in, in the scholarship and the way he talked about things. Well, for example, in his center in, uh, near Suratani on the southeast coast of Thailand, forest monastery, he had a big statue of Avalokitesvara. That may seem like so what to you, but in Thai Theravada Buddhist monasteries, you don't have statues of Avalokitesvara. It's from a whole different tradition. You know, it's really, they don't mix. <laughs> but just for that, he just had a much more broad view. So just a few things from a talk he gave. This is translated from the Thai. <clears throat> to he's talking to Thai lay people, not to monks and nuns. And he's talking about Nibbana for everyone. That's the name of the talk. So it's long. I just want to make a few points from what I'm talking about here. He says, Nibbana means cool, cool. And Nibbana is a natural condition. It is the cool state of mind. And, and recognize in, in Thai, as in Pali, mind, heart is the same word, chitta. It is the cool state of mind without any kalesha. So in any moment, he's saying, when there's no kalesha in the heart, in the mind, it's cooled out. It's cool. He goes on to say, it could be summed up that nibbana is the coolness resulting from the extinction of defilements, of torments. Now, as we look further, we see that the kalesha, greed, hatred, delusion, are also Sankaras, compounded things. All compounded things that arise will cease. So they're subject to birth and death. So this shows that the defilements occur when the causal conditions are present. And when those causal conditions are not present, and they will go away because every conditioned thing arises and ceases, when those causal conditions go away, the defilements simply become extinct in that moment. And I'm sure you've experienced that. When you're wanting your aversion, if you keep paying attention and suddenly it's just gone. Have you noticed that? That's the moment. It became extinct in that moment. Although, Buddhadasa, although the extinction is temporary, or in other words, the coolness takes place temporarily, the phenomenon has a real sense of nibbana, even though it's not the lasting one. So I'm talking about this not from uh, an Abhidhamma scholastic thing, but really as a, a teaching tool to help us, to, really to urge us all to keep recognizing these moments. Don't need to get lost in thinking, but it's not really nibbana, it's not really cessation. So just start to recognize these moments of coolness. He says, temporary nibbana does exist for those who unavoidably have some impurities left. <laughs> but he says, this temporary nibbana is that which nourishes sentient beings. Anyone can see that if defilements are with us all day and night, every second without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Right? 
We couldn't really. He said we'd go crazy or we'd die or both. So let us consider well the fact that one survives because there are periods that the fires of defilement are not burning. So as a matter of fact, we could say that these periods are more than when the fires are burning. This nourishing condition is thus normal to what may be called life or mind. So you say, so why, why don't we appreciate it more? Why, don't, why aren't we grateful, he says, for these moments of temporary nibbana? So just if you think of it as moments of coolness, when the fires of defilement are not burning, this is something that we can really, they're just little moments that we can really bring in with awareness. Of course, awareness is key to all of this, right? Awareness plays a part in every practice, in every technique, in everything we do in our life. But so with this awareness, we've we've really been looking a lot at at the torments here and the patterns that emerge and also wholesome qualities like the five spiritual faculties. But I just want to highlight that this is a normal, natural moment of coolness, freedom from defilement, and the the awareness recognizing, just recognize, not making some big whoop-de-doo, just recognizing is, I think it's, remember wisdom, when wisdom recognizes the wholesome, it strengthens the wholesome. That's just the nature. We don't have to hold on and strength. That's what happens. It's so far out. When wisdom recognizes the unskillful, the unwholesome, it doesn't feed it because it doesn't make sense. That's just natural. That's far out. But so this is just on the intellectual level I'm talking about this, but we can, we can start to notice it. That it's a natural, normal aspect of our mind. Dalai Lama, talking about the negative emotions and tendencies. Once these veils, the negative emotions and tendencies, have been removed, no new power is needed. Seeing and being aware is the nature of the mind itself. As long as the mind exists, it has the ability to know. But this ability does not reveal itself until all obscurations are removed. That is what it means to attain enlightenment. So again, take it down to one moment. In one moment, there are many moments when the obscurations are not there. And no new power is needed then just to recognize this purity of heart-mind. Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche. This is one's birthright, one's true nature. It's not something missing to be sought for and obtained, but is the very heart of our original existential being. It is actually inseparable from our uncontrived everyday awareness. Beyond willful alteration, free from conceptualizing. Unfabricated, ordinary awareness, unadulterated by effort and modification. Does that sound familiar? Only slightly different Tibetan language. Unfabricated, ordinary awareness. Naked, fresh, vivid, and totally natural. What could be simpler than this? To rest at home and at ease in total naturalness. 
So that's a different language, but that's just the same thing. Starting to just rest at ease in the natural awareness. And so, again, not looking for something, but just start to just have it in mind to notice the little moments that are cool because the fire of the torment isn't burning. And so, you know, the, it, it could be in any moment. It's nothing special going on most of the time. You know how on retreat you'll have moments where maybe you're outside and everything, it's just the isness. Everything just is, you know. You're not making up any stories. You're not really, maybe, there could be thoughts or not, but you're not referencing it back to what does it mean about me and what am I going to tell people about this and how can I hold it? Just, you know, little kind of perfect moments. And it could be seeing a lizard. Okay, that isn't here, right? That's in California. <laughs> here, here it could be seeing an icicle. You remember. That, that image that I just said, that that's an image from a retreat I did in 1975 when I was having, I remember I was just sitting in a chair and this little blue lizard went by and it was one of those perfect moments. But so often, uh, you know, we, we're drinking tea or whatever, so often we notice it, but we impute the, the purity, the perfectness, the whatever it is, to the particular situation, you know? Or, oh, it's so beautiful out. The ice crystals are so incredible. Or that lizard and the quietness and I'm on the retreat or, you know, drinking this tea and then you go and buy, you know, seven gallons of that tea because that was like the perfect thing, you know. You try to go back to the same place, you know. We impute it to that. Again, focusing on the object, it's got nothing to do with the object. It could be any object. It's the quality of mind-heart in that moment with awareness that the defilements aren't there burning. And so we have lots of little isness moments, some stronger than others, you know. But when it happens more, just, just don't stop it. You can't stop and grab, then it's gone, right? But just, just noticing more than the object, just kind of feel what that simple quality of pure mind-heart feels like in that moment. However it is, you don't put words to it or anything. Uh, it's not like you're trying to name it or call, call it out. But it's just kind of letting awareness come to it. becomes recognizable. We see it is really normal and natural. It is part of our everyday experience. But as with our tendency for intensity, we so much overlook it. Just as the simplicity of awareness, we so much overlook. Because it's not, it's so always available and so normal that we just don't even see it. One friend of mine, she was describing her experiences. She said, it's like, it's like the, the mind and heart feels squeaky clean. You know, like when you're cleaning a window and it's just so squeaky clean, there's nothing there, nothing in the way. I don't know if that works for you, but I like it. Just <laughs> but you get the sense it's almost tangible. So just start to let that in. It's really part of our life. The world doesn't change. It's not about the object but it's more this quality of mind, the cool mind free from kalatia, readily available, comes and goes. But if we don't even notice it, you know, if we don't even notice it, or if we do notice it and it's like, so what? Okay, then maybe this isn't your path. But <laughs> no, but mostly we don't notice it, we overlook because we're still looking for the big, 
you know, whatever it is. We're still in that somehow it's got to be really transformative, really pleasant, okay, let's face it, really something. But the world doesn't change. The Buddha woke up into this same world, you know. The way our heart and mind relates, responds, changes because we understand differently. And we understand differently because the lens of awareness is clear. It's clean. All those moments of non, not with burning defilement, what's also going on is clear and accurate recognition. So this isn't to think about it. I just want to say different ways of recognizing just kind of when it's there. Because then, this, uh, just as you've been learning over this time, in the beginning, maybe you didn't know what the heck we're talking about with awareness. And it gets more and more a sense of what it is, although you can't touch it or see it or really describe it to your friends when you go home. But there's a way you know when there's awareness and when there's not, right? Please say yes. <laughs> At least sometimes. We know. It's more familiar. And then we start to be able, you really can tell when there's torments in the coloring the awareness and when there's not. And so just as we get more and more familiar with how greed and aversion and delusion feel and, and affect our perception, we get more familiar with the thoughts and the action. We also get more and more familiar and at home when they're not there. So that's just really, I think, really key to let in. Not separate from our everyday awareness. It's not separate from our everyday awareness. It's not lying somewhere else. This is from Ajahn Tate, who was a Thai forest master too, talking about this. So he says, water in its natural state is a pure transparent fluid. But if dye is added, it will change color accordingly. You know, if red dye is added, it will be red. If blue, it will turn blue. But even though the water may change its color in accordance with the substances introduced into it, it does not forsake its innate purity and colorlessness. If a wise person is able to distill the colored water, it will resume its natural state. Because this is the same for the, the, the pure mind and the kalatia that visit it. So just all in different traditions, different ways of pointing to the same really natural, actually very simple and accessible aspect, experience over and over and over of our mind and heart. And so at the heart of all of the practices, of course, is this moment-to-moment awareness as we've been doing it here. As Ajahn Sumedho says, the practice of freedom is awareness. Well, it's a way of looking. I'm sure we'll go there, but he says, yeah. So anyway, awareness. But what I want to... Um, we've talked about that the whole time. I'm not going to say more about that. So now I can only just mention, I mean, each of these things I'm going to mention is at least one whole Dharma talk. Don't worry. It's not going to be. But I, all the different practices, all the different aspects that the Buddha talks about, about the path, of course, awareness is the overarching. Awareness is included with all of these, accompanies all of these, right? But they're all ways, again, of shifting, transforming the tormented habits of our mind and heart to the wholesome. So, and, and that's not just so we feel better, but that's actually what 
sets the conditions for the arising of moments of freedom. So it's not just, oh, this is a good thing and then later you'll be better. In themselves, absolutely essential aspects of freeing our heart-mind. And so you see there are different meditation practices, but also, like as, as Steve has said, the, the three pillars, generosity and um, moral conduct and all, all the different forms of meditation, of mental cultivation, all important. So all aspects of our life. So I know Steve talked a lot about generosity today. And we usually try to give a whole talk about it more and more because it's so key to cultivating the heart-mind of relinquishment, of uh, counteracting clinging. But the only thing I want to say about generosity and sila, restraint, is to recognize that they're not like um, heavy-duty, renunciation, difficult practices. The practices themselves, moments of generosity, moments of moral conduct, conscious conduct, bring so much joy and happiness, wholesome joy, wholesome happiness, that it's, it's not like we've got to practice to have a moment, please, when there's no collation, I can appreciate it, but that the practices themselves are cultivating a lightness of heart, a lightness of mind. So when in moments of generosity, whether it's just giving a smile, some time, listening, a flower, it, whatever it is, it's not the thing. It's that the motivation, the intention in our heart, and the connecting. To, to be generous also needs generous receiver. It's kind of like that's the circle, you know. So I, I won't say much, but I've spent a lot of time in Burma the last, every year for the last 14 years I've been going there. And... Um, it's, it's part of the Buddhist teaching of generosity and a large part of the culture is Buddhist, so it's quite inculcated in the culture. I do mostly hang out in monasteries and nunneries, but it's not only there. It's really all through the culture, just this kind of a, a appreciation of generosity as a practice. And so just so many places you go, everywhere. It, it just comes at you from everywhere. And there's this joy a happiness from people, you go to a little village and they're poor fisher people and they come and give you like this big dried fish. Like going, this big dried fish, please take this and give part of it to our friend who's in Thailand. Like we could take a big dried fish to Thailand, right? But <laughs> impossible. But this is like so full-hearted generosity. And there's this happiness in it, you know. I, I see in myself before, sometimes I would want to be generous and I might be a little ashamed, it's not a good enough thing to give, or what if they don't? And that's like, it's so self-centered, really. And the, when you're really giving, you're just like this happiness, please, this is what I have, this dried fish, and I want to give it to you. And so you take it in the same spirit, and that's what is also, no, no, don't give me your fish. You're too poor. I don't want to take your fish. That's so ungenerous. That's how we feel at first. But this sense of letting in the joy, and then it kind of, it's catching. And you start, like, there's a phrase, you know, opportunity for Donna. That's a very common, oh, this is another opportunity for Donna. And people always kind of have that in their mind. and, And just to have that in your mind, oh, this is a chance I can offer something. 
This is a chance I can be generous. It's such a lovely thing. So we take that fish and we go away and then the obvious thing, well, obviously we can't take it to town, so we'll go find a nunnery and offer it to the nuns. And it keeps going like that. Generosity goes to the next place, to the next place. Once um, I was staying at this meditation center where we often stay, right after the cyclone in 2008, so in, in the cyclone in south, the southwest of Myanmar, but also um, up into this area near Yangon, a great destruction. Many people were killed. People's houses were down. People really didn't have food. A lot of the rice production was destroyed. So the, the, we'd brought some money from a bunch of friends to try and help. And the Seadao, where we were staying, said, well, the village just around this meditation center, the people really don't have enough food. So he said, if you would offer the money, he would like to organize what he called a rice dana. So which meant for every house in the village, and it's all very carefully controlled there. They know who's, what houses and how many people live in each one. So we paid for it, and there's a whole building was filled with rice. And then the monks, who of course can't offer money or use money, the monks who live there, they went in there, and they spent their time filling up all the bags with rice, because that's what they could do, and they really want to do stuff to help too. And then each village person from each house in the village would come and we'd offer this bag of rice and you always do it face to face. It's not like you make a pile and they come and take it. The Sayadaw says, no, you guys have to come and stand here and hand them the rice. They're big, heavy, big, 50 pound bags of rice. And Narayan and I are like, we're each, the two of us together, like heaving this bag of rice up and this little lady comes and goes plop and puts it on her head. She has a kid on each hand and she goes walking off. I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) So, it's all along the way. It's very personal, face-to-face. And then so that was it. So then the next morning, the monks went out on alms round. And they still do that in Buddhist countries. Every morning, the monks go out with their alms bowl in a, 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 set, a set itinerary in the village. So each monastery has its own itinerary. And the village people know it's coming. And whoever wants, they know when they're coming, comes out and offers whatever they have. So a friend of ours, uh, 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 who was from Mexico, who was a monk there at the time and going every day. So this next day they went out and he came back and he said, he was so, he was really moved. He said, because we go the same route every day and pretty much the same people come out and offer and they just offer a little rice. That's all they can afford, which is fine. You know, they're actually, then the rest of the food is cooked for them in the monastery in this place. Some places still today in Thailand and Burma, the only food the monks get, and in some cases nuns, is what they get on alms round. Like up in Sagain, it's like that, up north. Anyway, so um, Raul said they came, but this day when they went out, after the rice dana, there were many, many more people out there giving rice. And some people had brought their little kids out to kind of like training them, you know, the, the kids would take the little spoonful of rice and put it, because they had gotten rice, so now they could offer some to the monks, and before they weren't able to, because they didn't have enough. And that's the first thing they did with it. And that's just kind of like the flow, how it goes, you know, and it's, it's really happiness producing. So in the moment of the generosity, with awareness, you can notice how the habit is being transformed in that moment. It's not, if I give enough, I'll store up merit and then later on. I mean, that's another way of looking at it. But in terms of our awareness in the immediacy of the moment, which is all there is, 
you can feel, let yourself appreciate that. Enjoy the happiness of generosity and also be happy in receiving and happy for the generosity of the other person. In that moment, you can start to feel some transformation. You can see a shift from the old habits. Similarly, with sila, with non-harming conduct, you know, it's not just we don't do these things, but you might notice every time, even in a little way, the motivation or the impulse comes up to so-called transgress, you know, to take something that's not yours, to squash a mosquito, whatever, and you don't do it. I don't know about you, but a lot of our kind of Western tendencies, oh God, I was so bad, what's the matter with me? I wanted to take that thing. Instead, you could actually notice that restraint, conscious restraint, is a wholesome movement of non-harming. That that's actually in that moment, appreciate that shift of habit. And again, the more and more we pay attention to seal and notice when, you know, the habits come up of wanting to harm or steal or we say something that's harmful, whatever. Notice how that feels. Notice the burning of the defilements. When we don't do it, notice how that's a wholesome quality of restraint. And it starts to arise more naturally, more easily. I'm sure you've noticed this. It's natural and easy. And in fact, the Buddha says, it's not an act of will. It's normal and natural that freedom from remorse arises in one endowed with virtue. It is in the nature of things. Freedom from remorse and really a kind of happiness. I'll give you another little simple example. Simple little ones, you know, but this is what's important to notice, the little ones. Um, I was with a friend, a good friend of mine. We were at Spirit Rock, which is a meditation center like this in California. And it has this, if you haven't been, it's this giant bookstore. I mean, bookstore, it sells all, every Dharma, tchotchke you could ever want, all kinds of stuff. And um, they had all kinds of little statues, and I wanted a particular one that I had seen. I want to go back and get it. So my friend and I went there, and it's a self-service bookstore, and, but I didn't see this particular statue out on display. So my friend had sometimes helped out there. and she knew, she knew how to get into the storage closets. Let's put it that way. So we went into the storage closet. And there's one that was just row after row after row of statues. Uh, the woman who, who um, supplies this is really good at buying things and getting a lot of things. So, so we, were, we were going through all these shelves looking for this particular statue. And taking out the ones ahead and getting to, it was, a, it was a, a white Tara statue I wanted. And so we were doing, we were being very careful. They were they're kind of like, not glass, a kind of, um, I don't know, I don't know, what kind of like a plastic kind of something. Anyway, we were pulling it out. And at this, almost the same moment, we each took out an, a, different, a different kind of statue ahead of the Tara. It was the same one, a Manjushri, with like a little sword up like this. And both had, we barely touched it and the sword just snapped off for both of us in each hand. We both go, oh no, you know, <laughs> we broke the thing. <laughs> we each broke it. And later we discussed this, that it went through both of our minds, which we didn't say, we could just put it back and no one would ever know. <laughs> it went like that thought went through both of our minds. And it was so clear, to, it just went through and there was like no temptation whatsoever. It was so clear we wouldn't do that. Even though the statues weren't cheap. You know, like you knew we'd have, so we, so we went and got the one I wanted. 
And then we took the statues, and actually the woman who runs the bookstore is a good friend. So we went to her office with our two broken statues, like two little bits. She wasn't there. So we're writing out, okay, we went, we broke the statues, what are we on? She comes in and goes, Carol, spirit, what are you doing here? And so we, we broke the statues. <laughs> what do we owe? And they weren't, you know, she goes, ah, that happens all the time. We just glue it back on and sell at half price. <laughs> oh, great, great. So it worked out. But then later we realized how really happy it made us both that there was, it was not even for a fraction of a second did either of us think I would really put that back and hide that. We would have totally gotten away with it. No one would have known, but that's not what it's about. That's the freedom from remorse, you know, and recognizing that in yourself rather than go, I'm so bad I had that thought recognize the space that doesn't act on it, the natural honesty, the natural restraint from harmful behavior and really appreciate that. This is also an act of changing the habits of our mind and it requires requires awareness. So I want to read this one sutta and then I won't go so much into the, the meditation practices They all, of course, are purifying the mind. Samadhi, all the different forms of samadhi, and the different forms of vipassana. But we've talked about that here, plus the time's running out. Oh, so this is something that I've really found helpful, though, in terms of conscious contemplation. I didn't have time to print it out. So it's not only that our habits are purified in the acts of generosity, in the acts of non-harming behavior, but that actually we can consciously reflect later on our wholesome actions as a source of shifting and transforming the habits, of purifying the heart and mind. So I'm just reading a part of a sutta that the Buddha is giving a long talk to a layman who has come and asked the Buddha, you know, where should we lay people dwell in our minds, you know, for awakening? He says, this is a great question, Mahanama. And the first place we dwell is the five spiritual faculties. Remember, remember them? Faith, perseverance, mindfulness, samadhi. Wisdom. Yes, I know. <laughs> and Wisdom. So they're not just for people in deep retreat. That's the first thing. And then he talks about some conscious reflections. So I just want to read what he says about reflecting on your virtues and then on your generosity is exactly the same. Furthermore, Mahanama, there is the case where you recollect your own virtues. They are unbroken, liberating, praised by the wise, untarnished, conducive to concentration. Now, this is the important, I think. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting their own virtue, her mind is not overcome with greed, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Her mind heads straight based on virtue. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the noble one gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, piti arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. 
One whose body is calmed experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. It's always one leads to the next, to the next, and it's just the nature of things. So, Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of virtue while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home crowded with children. So he's not just saying once in a while that this is an active act with awareness of purifying our heart and mind and bringing in joy, leading to the mind and heart free from defilement in any moment. The same with recollecting your generosity. It is great for me that among people overcome with a stain of possessiveness, I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, freely generous, open-handed, responsive to requests. And the same thing, at any time when a disciple of the Noble Ones is recollecting her generosity, her mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Her mind heads straight, based on generosity. So, and I'll end with this, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. So, big picture, take care of your awareness in all aspects of our life. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So if you have energy, please use this next time for awareness in any posture. If you have the energy to come back to our last sitting together tonight, please feel invited. If you're really tired and rest is appropriate, lie down mindfully, wake up mindfully, and notice the moments when the fires of defilement aren't burning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.